Well, when I was in seminary, there was a Greek professor named Dr. Felix. And he was a great professor, but I think he's a little bit better known for his daughter. The name might ring a bell, Allison Felix. Just, you know, the most decorated U.S. women's track and field Olympian in, in American history. Since 2004, she's won six gold medals and three silver medals. And although I don't know Dr. Felix that well or Allison Felix at all, it's still by far the, the closest connection I have to an Olympic gold medalist. And suffice it to say, sermon illustrations featuring an Olympic runner pretty much wrote themselves during seminary. I find it pretty interesting to think about the life of an Olympian. Very few select people with athletic prowess train so much it becomes a full-time job towards that goal. And they compete at various yearly events, but their eye is all on that, that same prize, Olympic gold. It's our hope of glory to have their names written in the record books forever. Most people would want that glory and the, the fame and fortune that goes with it, but very few get there. Why? Well, you could say you just weren't born with the genetic makeup, and that may be true. But I think, let's face it, for most of us, even if you had an athletic body, you're just not willing to, to suffer and to sacrifice as much as is required to win that gold. Think of all that the Olympic athlete sacrifices. They sacrifice their time, training maybe five-plus hours a day, they devote serious time to, to rest, to food prep. That's another sacrifice. They're on a very strict diet, and they have to kiss goodbye all, all the delights of dessert and junk food. And I think that right there would disqualify most of us. Even their relationships are to a degree sacrificed, as pretty much every aspect of their lives has to take a backseat to their goal. This sacrifice also brings suffering. They suffer frequent exhaustion, pain, aches, fatigue. In the days and weeks leading up to a competition, there's also the mental fatigue of, of fear and anxiety and worry. If they were to even lose their race, the, the psychological suffering could last a lifetime. And so, yeah, the, the glory sounds great, but we're just not willing to, to go through that much sacrifice and that much suffering for that prize. But what if I told you that the glories of heaven require a similar road of sacrifice and suffering. Would you still sign up for that? Would you still want to be a Christian? No, getting to heaven doesn't require some form of penitential suffering where you're, you're trying to make yourself pay for your own sins. That's not what we're talking about. I'm simply stating that the road to glory is often paved through paths of suffering. In the Christian life, toil is involved, and struggle Affliction, persecution, suffering, sometimes intense suffering. And if that's the case, are you sure you still want to follow Christ? Have you counted the cost? The familiar passage, Luke 9:23, Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Here Jesus expresses the high cost of discipleship. The eternal life Jesus offers, it's free, but it's not cheap. Glory is offered. We're talking about the complete forgiveness of sins, life everlasting with, with God himself. 
But as with an Olympic runner, only more so, sacrifice is involved. Suffering is involved before you get there. What must you sacrifice? Well, only your entire life. As you come to Jesus and see him for who he is, namely the sovereign Lord, you recognize that to follow him means to follow no one else. And that includes yourself. A dying to self is required where you sacrifice your will, your desires, your wishes, your plans for your life. You lay them at the feet of Jesus to be used by him for his plans and his will. That type of sacrifice, though, is going to invite suffering. For in following Jesus, you've set yourself on a collision course with the world. When you come to a true faith in Jesus, he transfers you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. But this means to the world, now you're a traitor to their cause. They're at war with God. And even though you once were one of them, now you've switched sides. Now you're their enemy. The darkness hates the light. So if you're really going to follow Jesus in and walk in the light, how do you think they're going to treat you? They're going to treat you like they treated him. How did they treat him? Well, Jesus, he picked up his cross first, didn't he? And where was he going with his cross? To a place of suffering. And what did he do there? He laid down his life for us. And he calls us to do the same in following him. Not as if we're, we're sacrificing ourselves to save others, no. But, but now in our allegiance to him and our union with him as we tread in the same path that he walked. Well, it's going to invite the same conflict with the darkness. So this is why we say, even though the Christian life is full of immense peace and joy and blessing, it's also one of toil, hardship, and at times even suffering. And I think there'd be a lot fewer false or confused Christians out there if if they had rightly counted this cost. Now, if you've been at this church for any length of time, you've you've heard me say all this before. You've heard this call to discipleship before, this call to count the cost before. So why do I keep giving it? Well, simply because it's my, my duty to strive and make sure that you're not the seed sown by the rocky places, which at first receives the word with great joy, but when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. This is all the more relevant as the tide is turning in America. You know, the culture is starting to oppose the Christian faith. And this in turn spells great trouble, especially for all those Christians who are trained to think that following Jesus means your best life now. It means all your problems will, will go away if you just invite Jesus into your heart. Everything bad will just melt away. It's your promise to a prosperous life. But that's just not real, nor is that the expectation of discipleship that Jesus himself gave. Instead, he told his disciples to expect suffering. Affliction and persecution on account of the word will arise, he told them. And because of this, some will fall away. Now, I can't control how anyone responds to times of suffering, but I can continue to equip you and, and encourage you 
by giving you an accurate picture of what to expect in following Christ. Yes, there's glory involved. By God's grace, we will inherit immeasurable glory. But the road to get there is one oftentimes of, of suffering. It's the inevitable role of suffering in the life of a Christian. This is something you need to be aware of. It's something you need to be prepared for. And this morning we're going to do just that from our passage in Philippians chapter 1. So why don't you join me now. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 as we continue. Philippians chapter 1. We come to the very end of this first chapter this morning. And only here does Paul finally get to actually addressing the Philippians. So far he spent the whole chapter telling them about his own personal circumstances, as well as that of other Christians in Rome. It's not until verse 27 that he gives the first command or, or admonition in the, in the letter. We studied that last week. Look again at Philippians 1:27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that, too, from God. We find this to be a very familiar exhortation from Paul, basically to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You've been called to Christ, so walk like him. Now, we found, though, that Paul... He, he tailors this message just for the Philippians. He says to them alone, literally, to live as good citizens. This is fitting because, as you know, Philippi was a Roman colony, meaning it was full of very proud Roman citizens. But he's telling them, look, if you're in Christ, that means you're a citizen of, of a greater kingdom with a greater king, so you should live in light of that, that greater kingdom and that greater king. What does such a, a life look like? Well, we explored that last week. He exhorts them to, number one, stand firm. Number two, be united. And number three, be fearless. As believers living in a hostile world, they, they need to, to strive to, to hold on to the faith, to stand firm in the faith. But they can't do that alone. They need to do so together, united. And together they must be fearless not letting their opponents intimidate them. In that last part, though, we're introduced to their opponents. So far in Philippians 1, Paul has said much of his personal opponents. He, he's got a lot. He's suffered a lot from his opponents. Many of them were outside the church. Some were even inside the church. And they all caused him quite a bit of Suffering. So Paul's got opponents. And now at the end of the chapter, though, we learn the Philippians have opponents as well. Already he's bringing up their opponents. In reality, though, if you're a Christian, you have opponents. Just by definition, you have those who oppose you. If you're a member of the British Royal Army during the American Revolutionary War, he decided to defect switch sides, join the American colonial forces, they would welcome you with open arms to their cause. But in doing so, you'd have to realize that instantly 
you would now be at war with the entire British Empire. And likewise, switching allegiance from, from the darkness to the light means you're now instantly in conflict with sin, Satan, and the world. And now, part of being a good citizen of heaven means engaging in this conflict. Ours, as we learned last week, it's primarily a defensive battle. We are merely to stand firm in the faith. But that means we're often going to have to endure the assaults of our many opponents. But he tells them, hey, don't be discouraged. Such assaults, verse 28, they're signs. Signs of destruction for them. As they, people oppose us, they're really just opposing Christ. And in doing so, they're sealing their own doom. And at the same time, as you endure such assaults, it's a sign of your salvation, he says. Again, false believers, they fall away when such conflict arises. Whatever cultural reason they had for following Jesus quickly becomes not good enough when persecution hits. But as you endure, you gain the assurance of your salvation. But did you notice, the very end of verse 28 That last phrase we didn't look at last week. Look again at Philippians 1, the very end of verse 28. It's a little phrase he says, and that too from God. In other words, the conflict they were suffering was in reality from the hand of God. The persecution they were enduring was in fact a sign from God himself of his intention, not not to curse them, but to save them. But if you caught that, that might strike you as, as strange. Like, wait a second, is that, is that right? Was God actually sending them persecution? Was God actually bringing about their suffering? That sounds backwards. Isn't God our good father? Isn't his job to protect us? Doesn't he want to deliver us from suffering? Isn't that why Jesus came, that we wouldn't have to suffer anymore? So how can it be that God would allow his children, or even send his children suffering. Is that right? These are all good and valid questions. And if you want answers, a good place to start is with the very next verse. Because in the next verse, Paul goes on to explain God's relationship to our sufferings. And so our passage for this morning, let's turn now to Philippians 1, 29 through 30, the very next passage, and let's read that. Philippians 1, look at verse 29. He says, For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Just on the surface, this verse seems to be saying that suffering does indeed come to Christians by God's own hand. In fact, Paul even seems to be suggesting that suffering, it could even be seen as a gracious gift from God. He says, for to you has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is one of those verses, though, that produces more questions than it answers. Does God have a role in the afflictions and persecutions as people suffer? 
The answer seems to be yes, but this makes us wonder, how can that be? What role exactly does God play? Does this mean our suffering is good? How should we view our suffering? How should we respond to our suffering? There's obviously a lot we need to explore here, and we're going to do that. First, let's just begin by going through the text, make sure we understand just what is what is he really saying. Just go through phrase by phrase. What, what is Paul really actually saying here? Let's start with that. Back to verse 29. He starts off by saying, For to you it has been granted. This verb for granted in the Greek, charizomai. The word incorporates the word for grace. It means literally to give graciously, to bestow on one favor. You could paraphrase it and say it's a grace gift, a free gift. As a child, you love receiving gifts. And for many, that's all that Christmas or their birthday is about, the, the, the rush of, of joy they get as they tear through wrapping paper like a little tornado. But as you get older, you become a parent, you tend to find more joy in giving gifts. You know, without encouraging materialism, it still delights a parent to see their child open a present and, and just receive something, see their face light up. And as you give them a gift, you don't expect anything in return. You're not waiting for them to, to pay you back for it or write a check or something like that. You give freely simply because you love them. And that's the type of giving represented in this word, charizomize, freely giving, graciously giving something to someone. This word was used of Jesus, freely giving sight to the blind. It was used of a money, la- money lender who, who graciously gave forgiveness to those who couldn't pay him back. Paul uses charizomize over in Romans 8.32 to describe how God, who did not spare his own son, will with him freely give us all things. Most significantly, though, as, as you might know, this concept of a grace gift is used to describe our own salvation. How does God administer our salvation? How does he give us salvation? As a, as a free gift. It's a grace gift. You know Ephesians 2.8, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. Now, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And our verse, Philippians 1.29, is very similar to that, that verse. That salvation by faith itself comes as a gift of God. Paul says, for to you it has been granted, charizomai, grace gifted, for Christ's sake, to believe in him. First he says, to believe in him. And before we get to that second part, You first need to establish and recognize that our our very faith in Jesus as Lord comes down as a gracious gift. Salvation belongs to the Lord. None earn it. None deserve it. All who receive it, receive it the same way, as a free gift. That I hope you recognize and understand and appreciate. And you can preach a whole sermon just on that. But in this passage... The emphasis falls on the second part of what Paul says. For you see, there's another gift mentioned in this verse. The difference is, no one really wants this gift. You don't ask for it. When other people get it, you don't envy them. When you get it, you wish you could take it back. But you can't. 
What is this second grace gift we're talking about? Well, again, verse 29. For to you it has been granted, charizomai, grace gifted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is a profound, deep, meaty truth. Paul is saying that the affliction and suffering the Philippians were enduring at the hands of their opponents actually came to them as a grace gift of God. Even more so, he's saying that God grants them suffering, graciously grants them suffering in the same way that he graciously grants them salvation. I mean, think about that. In the same way that he bestows on them the gift of salvation, and no one would doubt that as a grace gift. He says in the same way he bestows on them suffering. So it's actually a very straightforward verse. There's no way around it. This verse plainly means what it says. Paul is telling them that their sufferings, far from being accidental, are actually purposeful. Somehow God intends their sufferings as a gift. Let me just, just read it for yourself. It's what the text says it's a significant truth hidden in plain sight that you don't hear preached too often that God intends our sufferings as a gracious gift. Now I know you're still wondering that that just doesn't sound right. How can that be? Because you've probably never thought of suffering as a good thing, as a gracious gift before and and you're not wrong in that. But before we answer that, let me give you two points of clarification. First, just to be precise with the text, technically, the suffering Paul is talking about here is Christian persecution. Technically, he's not talking about getting cancer or breaking your leg. He's talking about suffering in some way for the gospel. Even though everything would basically apply to suffering in general, technically, he's talking about suffering for Christ. He mentions two times in verse 29 that this is for Christ's sake. We are suffering for Christ's sake. It comes on account of Christ. It is their allegiance to Christ, their union to Christ, that invites this suffering. It also fits with what he says in verse 30. Look again at verse 30. He says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. What conflict is he talking about? Well, the conflict he endured when he was in Philippi and in Rome. What happened to Paul in Philippi? You remember, he and Silas were beaten to a pulp and and then falsely imprisoned. And the Philippians saw that with their own eyes. What about Rome? Well, Paul was, again, falsely accused, mistreated, and imprisoned. And the Philippians had heard about that. And this was persecution for the faith. And Paul is telling them now that they're going to get their share too. In fact, it's already upon them. He says, they're already experiencing the same conflict which they saw and heard in him. It's a conflict with the world that comes on account of following Christ. Their suffering may not be as intense as Paul's, but it's coming. And here in Philippians 1.29, Paul is explaining for them the nature of their suffering. It's not a curse. It's not a judgment. They haven't done anything wrong. 
It's actually a gift, a grace gift from God. He's trying to help them understand and compute their suffering so that they might rightly respond. God has good purposes in it. This leads to the second point of clarification. Yes, God does have good purposes and intentions in allowing his children to suffer. But you must also understand God is not the author of evil. God is not the author of evil. To be clear, suffering is not good. Persecution for the sake of Christ, it's not good. It's not something we are to seek out. And when it comes, who is to blame? Well, evil, wicked men. When the early Christians were burnt at the stake or thrown to wild animals, although God can and does use such evil for his greater purposes, it's still evil. And those responsible will be held accountable and they will be judged. Joseph learned this lesson from the Old Testament. I mean, he suffered greatly at the hands of his brothers and the Egyptians simply for the sake of righteousness. Yet through his sufferings, God sovereignly guided his life and put him in a position to save the lives of of thousands. And Joseph later learned and testified, Genesis 50, 20, you know, he says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It's God's business to take what evil men mean for evil and to turn it somehow into good. And that's what we're talking about here. Humans, sometimes evil men are to blame for our suffering. And sometimes it's it's Satan and demons. Job learned that lesson, right? Job was a righteous man. He, He had done nothing wrong. But God allowed him to suffer greatly at the hands of Satan for his greater purposes. Satan is responsible for that evil, and one day he too will be judged. But God can transform such evil and use it somehow for his greater good, and that's what he does. Isn't that what God did with his own son? Look no further than the cross of Christ to see God use what men mean for evil and turn it into the greatest good. So I hope these clarifications help you understand the impact of Philippians 1.29. For to you, it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. All that's left for us now is to return to that, that fundamental question. How can this really be? Okay, we've seen some examples of, of God using and turning suffering into good. But still, we're not used to thinking of suffering as a gracious gift. I mean, look, we're talking about real people, real suffering, real pain. How could that ever be construed as good? Well, maybe if we had some clarification now on on the good that God does bring about through the suffering, maybe we could digest this a little bit better. So, So let's do that now. Let me suggest for you five ways God intends our suffering as a gracious gift. Five ways God can use our suffering as a gracious gift. We'll start with the most important, the most significant reason of them all. Number one, suffering brings Christ-likeness. Suffering brings 
Christ-likeness. All right, how so? How does suffering bring Christ-likeness? Well, suffering is, is one of God's greatest tools of purification. Legend says that the great sculptor Michelangelo was asked how he was able to, to create his masterpiece, the statue of David, out of just a block of marble. And it said that he responded, well, it's simple. You just take the block of marble and chip away everything that's not David. And there you go. Well, similarly, God uses suffering like a chisel in his hand, and he chips away everything that doesn't belong. Every part of you that does not look like Christ has a way of being removed when you suffer. Suffering typically produces greater holiness. The true believer will use affliction as an occasion to examine his heart and search out that the hidden refuges of sin in his life and repent and turn from them. Suffering also leads to greater prayer and dependence on God. Just about every believer will say, yeah, I know I need to pray more. I really should be praying more. Well, just wait until you suffer, and you will. Was this not the response of Peter and the apostles when they were persecuted for the faith? They had no other hope, no other help. All they could do was cast their cares upon God, and they did so. But you see, that's what God wants. That's the right response, which is akin to faith. And so God, at times, he will happily use suffering if it gets us to pray more like Jesus prayed and to to depend on him entirely. Especially when you suffer for the gospel, for following Jesus. Paul says later in Philippians, you enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. You come to understand a little bit more of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And that leads to a greater appreciation and in turn, greater worship. So we could keep going for many reasons in many ways. God can take whatever affliction you're going through and he can use it to conform you into the image of his son. And don't forget, Jesus suffered too. And he suffered first simply for being the son of God. Okay, I trust, I trust you get that. But now maybe you're wondering, is there an option to be less like Christ and forego the suffering? Like, can we opt out of all the suffering and just just accept being less like Christ? Sadly, I think that's how many Christians think. They would be totally fine with that. I mean, they like the idea of getting to heaven. That's nice. We like that. But this whole being conformed into the image of Christ part, not so great. I mean, the, the suffering, I don't want all that suffering. That's pretty extreme. Jesus died on a cross. I don't want to die on a cross. I'm living life pursuing happiness. But you can see with that mentality the conflict with Christ's call to discipleship. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And again, when it comes to that whole deny yourself part, that includes denying your old purpose for living. Before you came to, to know Christ, what was your purpose in life. For most, it was the pursuit of, of happiness or health or, or riches or fame or pleasure, something like that. Living for self in one way or another. But when you come to Christ, God gives you a new purpose for living, a new goal. 
And do you know what that is? Do you know God's purpose for your life in Christ? What is God's number one goal for your life in Christ? If you want really quick to turn to Romans 8, keep your finger in Philippians and just flip back to Romans 8, 28. Or you can listen along, but you know the verse, Romans 8, 28. Paul says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a famous verse on suffering. It doesn't say that all things are good, but that God uses all things for good to those who are to those who love him and to those he says who are called according to his purpose. Not our purpose, his purpose. So there it is. God has a purpose in calling us. Question is what is it? What is the purpose for which God calls us to himself? Well, wouldn't you say that God's purpose for calling us is the same reason that he predestined us. Wouldn't you say that? And so look at the next verse. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. I hope you get the picture. Why did God save you? Why did he predestine you? What is God's purpose for your life? It's not to be rich. It's not to be successful. It's not to be popular. It's not to be healthy. God did not predestine you to live long and and prosper. No, but rather God wants something far more important for you that you would be like Jesus Christ, that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's why God predestined you. That's why he saved you, that you would become like his son. God's the sculptor. You're the clay. And though painful at times, he's molding and shaping you into the perfect image of his perfect son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. God's populating heaven. This is God's purpose for your life. And if if that's true, if that's God's purpose for your life, that you would be conformed to, to Christ. Don't you think you should make that your purpose for your life? You think that's part of like following Jesus? Yeah, it is. Part of coming to Christ by faith means embracing God's will for your life. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done, we pray, right? And so God's will for your life is not the pursuit of happiness, it's the pursuit of holiness, of, of Christ-likeness. Now with this in mind, let me ask you another question. And I've taught this before, so you've, you may have heard this before. But, but anyway, what if someone asks you, what, what's the best thing that could happen to you right now? How would you answer that question? Most people would say, well, get a million dollars. Or why not? Let's make it a billion dollars. Get a, get a billion dollars. Or some would say healing, health, something they're going through. Just If I could just be healed, it's the best thing that could happen to me. But listen... If you're really sold out on God's purpose for your life, how would you answer that question? Your answer would be that at any given moment, the best thing that could happen to you would be anything that makes you 
more like Christ. You see that? I know it's pretty radical thinking, but Jesus called radical disciples. And that's the only type of disciple, by the way. So, so connect the dots here with this and suffering. What is God's goal for your life? That you would be conformed to the image of Christ. That you'd be made like Christ. So what should be your goal for your life? That, you'd be made, that you would be made more like Christ. Therefore, what's the best thing that could ever happen to you? Well, anything that gets you closer to your goal, anything that makes you more like Christ. Well, with this in mind, what if I told you that God uses suffering to make you more like Christ? In fact, didn't we already cover that? that that's what he does. And so if God uses suffering to make you more like Christ, then in a way you could actually say suffering, it could be the best thing that ever happened to you. You could even come to say that suffering, it could, if, it, if it truly makes you more like Christ, it could even be a gift, a grace gift. And indeed it is. This is how suffering is transformed in the life of a disciple from the worst thing that could ever happen to you to potentially the best because it is helping you, causing you to to progress in achieving your goal. It is conforming you to the image of Christ. That's God's purpose for your life. That should be your purpose for your life. That's a good thing. I mean, just think back to the Olympic athlete. A ton of suffering is involved in their training, right? But do they frown upon this suffering? No. I mean, they don't love it. It's not a good thing. But they accept it. They embrace it. They know they have to push through and endure all this suffering if they're ever going to get to the prize. No gold medalist ever made the podium without enduring a lot of necessary suffering first. And it's the same way for us. Suffering comes with the territory. Earlier I mentioned we're trained to see suffering as the worst thing that could ever happen to us. And why is that? Because suffering usually comes with loss. When you suffer, you lose. You lose time, you lose money, you lose energy. You might even lose people, relationships. But can you think back to Philippians 1.21? You can, if you're in Romans, you can flip back to Philippians 1. Do you remember Philippians 1.21? It's that Christian manifesto. Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Do you remember what that means? Paul's expressing the heart of Christianity, which is Christ himself. Jesus was his life's treasure. And therefore, Paul was ready to suffer the loss of all things if it meant gaining more of Jesus. But, but through that, that mentality, the greatest suffering, according to the world, which is death, is transformed into gain. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. How can death be gain? Death means loss. You, you lose everything. You lose all your treasure. But as we learned, the only way death is gain is if your treasure is Christ. Because in death, you only gain more of your treasure. You gain Christ. And it's the same chain of thinking 
that similarly transforms all suffering into gain. Because through the fire, God is, is refining you and bringing more of you to Christ and more of Christ to you. The refiner's fire melts away all that, that doesn't matter. And we may suffer loss. But we gain Jesus. We gain more of Jesus. And that, for the disciple, that's everything. If you can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you can say that, then and only then can you view suffering as a grace gift, charizomai, a gracious favor that God bestows upon you. Imagine you have an only child. He's sick with a disease. It's going to take his life. But there's a cure. And all you have to do is give him a shot. It's a miracle. You praise God for this cure. So you happily rush him to the doctor. He's going to administer the shot. It's going to save his life. Your child, however, doesn't understand what's going on. He's young. All he sees is this big, scary needle approaching him that he knows is going to inflict him with pain. And he screams as it pierces his skin. And he wonders, how can you do this to him? Maybe you're holding him down. I mean, do you love him? How could you make him suffer like this? Maybe you hate him. But would you let this stop you from administering the shot? No, you wouldn't. Because as parents, you know better. I mean, first off, you know, yeah, it's going to hurt your son. But look, it's only for a short while. In the grand scheme of things, it's a short amount of suffering. And second, you're doing this for the greater good. You're trying to save his life. I mean, you know he's too young to understand. And he might even become bitter. But one day, he'll understand and he'll thank you for it. Because through this pain, you're actually showing him a greater love. And so it is with those who follow Christ. God is our good Heavenly Father. He knows what He's doing. And He is good. Yes, He may allow and use suffering in our lives from time to time. And it might hurt. But first, know in the eternal scheme of things, it's a very short time. It's a very short momentary time of suffering. And also know, second... That God is working for the greater good. Because this pain is intended to make us more like Christ. It's like Paul said elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's Paul talking. So when he says momentary light affliction... He means way more suffering than you've ever imagined. But still, he sees that as just nothing compared to what it's producing, which is immeasurable glory. God knows what he's doing, even with suffering in our lives. Even if you might be a spiritual infant, I pray you grow in your understanding and see God's eternal purposes in all things. He is working through your afflictions to make you more like Christ, fit for eternity. So let this transform you and transform how you suffer. We'll talk how to, about how to respond more later, but, but already we can see how oh, this, this should change everything. This changes your perspective. When most people suffer, when most Christians suffer, how do they respond? They pray. And that's good. What do they pray, though? They say, Lord, take it away. Just take it away. Remove the suffering. Let the thorn in the flesh be removed. And that's it. That's all they pray. 
Look, there's nothing wrong with praying that. We said suffering is not good. So I pray, Lord, take it away. But as John Piper would say, don't waste your suffering. Don't settle for that alone. Rather, also pray, Lord, I pray you would take this away. But as it's here, Lord, use this trial to mold me, to break me, and to reform me into the image of Christ. Your will be done in my life. That's the only way you can really say, like James 1, that you can count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Who can count it joy? Well, only if you see God's hand in perfecting you through the fire. You see God's gracious gift in the trial. Some of you might be suffering right now. And really, all of this applies. It's primarily he's talking about Christian persecution, but really... It all applies to any suffering. Whatever you're suffering, just keep enduring. We'll talk more about that next time, but just keep enduring. And also take comfort and joy knowing God is with you. He's for you. He is your good father and he is working in you to make you more like his son. So see the grace gift in the pain. See the opportunity in the suffering to become more like Christ, which should be your life's purpose. Now, if you're paying attention, you might recall me saying I was going to give you five ways God uses suffering to make us more like Christ. Five ways God intends our suffering as a grace gift. We've only covered one. Well, that is on purpose. We will indeed come back next time and do the rest. It's such a weighty topic. It's worthy of more of our time. But I wanted to make sure that we covered the top reason today. And this is the top reason. Suffering brings Christ-likeness. This is God's primary intention in our trials. So let this for now purify and amplify your worship of Christ. As you suffer, you're drawn into the fellowship of his suffering. And let this give you a better appreciation of what he suffered for you. And as Jesus met the cross before glory, and we know we must do the same, also know that he is faithful. He will not forsake you. He will safely deliver you to his kingdom. For, 1 Peter 5.10 says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Lord, we pray that this morning. To you be the dominion, to you be the glory forever and ever. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. Lord, we live in a fallen world, chiefly due to our own sin, and our own sin brings suffering on ourselves all the time. We may suffer. We will suffer even at times for Christ himself, Lord. But in in all these sufferings, though they can seem overwhelming to us, they can seem more than we can take. We need to speak your truth to our minds and remember. In the grand scheme of things, this is momentary light affliction. This is suffering for a little while, and indeed it's it's part of a fallen world. We are cursed, yet we've been redeemed. And Lord, we, we, we have to say thank you for this eternal weight of glory you've produced for us that we don't even deserve. Lord, we deserve eternal suffering. But we can 
happily say this life and all its sufferings is the closest to hell we'll ever get because of what Christ did for us, how you sent your son to die that you might make us your children. And although this life may still involve a path of hardship for us, Lord, we accept it from your good hands, knowing you have a good purpose for it. You are merely making us more like your son, and that's really the best thing that could happen to us. I pray you transform and challenge our hearts this morning. It's not a, it's not a small truth, but convict us and then equip us with this knowledge. Then we can even rejoice and count it all joy when we encounter whatever trial because we see your good hand, our good Father's good hand, using it for good. So we thank you, Lord. Whoever is suffering here, lift them up. Encourage them this morning. And for the rest, prepare us. Our day will come that we would worship you no matter what. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.